You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7-11. through 11. I want to uh, invite you this morning to do something a little bit different than we have mostly done or ever done here. Uh, If you have a Bible in front of you, I want you to read that with me. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, I want you to read it off the screen with me. So that's a challenge to our Mr. Bryce in the background to keep up well. Um, And so, uh, honestly, I don't want to read to you. I want you to read with me. And so uh, I I want to hear your voices. I want to hear us participate in this together. Now, whenever people do community readings, it's usually pretty wonky, okay? And I'm certain it'll be that way for us today, and it's quite okay. Uh, We're going to begin in verse 7, and we're going to read down through verse 11. On your marks, get set, go. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Pray, God, this morning that you would come and that you would speak powerfully to us. Pray, God, that you would come and do a work of transformation and change in us. Help us to learn what it means to be a church family who lives and loves and serves just like Jesus. Amen. Hey guys, you may be seated. Hey, so in this passage, um, the Apostle Peter uh, basically issues a call to Christians everywhere to live in such a way that their prayers are not just hindered, but are actually unleashed by self-control and sober-minded thoughtfulness. One of the first things I picked up as I was reading this. He also uh, instructs Christians everywhere um, with this thought. It's the thought that we are to overcome sin. How? By loving one another vigorously. And he even paints a picture. How do you love one another vigorously? Well, the words he used is hospitality. Hospitality simply means to invite and to welcome even the dirtiest of society into relationship without complaining. It gives a qualification for it. And he kind of follows that up at the end with this concept that you and I are to be faithful stewards, which means managers of the gifts and the talents, these gracious gifts and talents that God um, has given us. He tells them, he says, hey, as you speak for God, you're stewarding the gift. 
as you serve, serving God's strength, because it's His gift that He gives you. And in doing so, you're going to bring attention to God in Christ, who is what? He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. You see all those words on the screen. Those are just words that jump off the page. right? Self-control, sober-minded, prayer, love, hospitality, stewards, gifts, glorifying God. Those are eight words that you and I could do really well just to do a systematic study through the scriptures on, right? You could just look up those words and you could do some study on what those words mean and what, what God asks and, and what God expects of us in those categories. Basically, the bottom line is what, what, what Peter is saying here is that God's calling us to live, to love, and to serve, just like Jesus did. It's really what's going on in this, in this passage. But when I think about Peter's call to live, to love, and to serve in, in the ways that he describes it, I don't know what happens inside of you. But what happens inside of me, at least when I first began to study this, is I began to feel just a little bit uncomfortable. Okay? Just a little bit uncomfortable. And here's the reason why. My life is not always characterized by those words you saw on the screen. Right? My life is not always characterized by self-control. It's not always characterized by the concept of sober-mindedness. Sometimes the chaos of my own inconsistencies, sometimes the chaos of the lure of the pleasures of this world wind up wreaking more havoc on my prayer life than my prayer life is on those things. You know what I mean? Like I have my days, uh, this might surprise some of you, um, some of you probably have a higher standard for the guy on the stage. I have my days where I just want to hide out in the corner of my garage. Right? I just want to hide out in the corner of my garage. I want to be in my own little bubble. I want to stay away from society. Sometimes I even catch myself in the corner of my garage with the door closed, complaining in my mind. Amen. Okay. <laughs> we know. Complaining a little bit in my mind, usually about other people. Can I get another amen? Okay, <laughs> all right. Catch myself complaining about other people, and I find myself in this space where like, the last thing that I want to do in those moments is get up and use my talents to serve one more person who, let's be honest, in all the cynicism that I can possibly muster, probably isn't going to return the same reciprocal investment in me anyways. Anybody else ever get there? Okay, I'm not saying I like being there. Actually, well, here's the problem. There is a part of me, because I'm still sinfully broken, that does for some reason enjoy the taste of that sin in the moment. Like somehow that kind of whining and pouting and complaining is actually going to change something. You know? Like the outcome of that kind of sin isn't really just gross. Um, but deep, deep, deep down inside of me, because the Spirit of God does live in me, I don't want to be there. Ever find yourself in these places? Right? All the time. 
It's a really dark place to be. Those are really dark places to be, to find yourself fighting this losing battle, right? Feels like a losing battle. You're fighting with the chaos um, inside of you or outside of you. You're fighting a losing battle with the pleasures of this world, right? You're, you're maybe you're struggling to even pray on a daily basis. Last three months have been some of the hardest months of my prayer life. If I didn't stand on stage and just pray really good pastoral prayers, but if you heard my real prayers, and my wife said this one night we were praying before we went to bed, and we haven't prayed enough together lately, so I just confess that. Um, I remember after I got done praying, she was like, whoa, that was maybe a little too real. That she didn't say that, but that was the tone. <laughs> I was angry, right? I was upset, struggling to trust the Lord, doubting. That was the place I was in that night. So I've struggled in the last three or four months with my prayer life like you wouldn't believe. You ever give in um, to, to that temptation that kind of like sneaks its way in? Right? It just kind of sneaks its way in. You don't even notice it's there, and then suddenly it's there. It's this temptation to stop loving, inviting, welcoming, even the dirtiest of society. Or, or how, about, how about your enemies into relationship with you? Like, oh, she said that. Oh, he did that. I'm not texting or calling that person anymore. You can kiss my you-know-what, whatever. You're getting that place? You're like take my shoe off and knock the dust off my feet and walking out of that place called Samaria. I don't want nothing to do with you. Sinful people, you. <laughs> so that's a tough place to be when you get there, right? <laughs> um, let me ask this question. This is a heavy one, okay? So I just set you up right I wrote this down and I was like, ooh, crap. How often have you found yourself complaining about other people's shortcomings while at the same time sitting on your butt refusing to invest the appropriate amounts of time, talent, and treasure into others that God has called you to while you hide out in your own little bubble? Consistently, <laughs> Consistently is the answer, right? Like, that's one that no matter how good you think you got this down, you can go, yep, that's me. Yesterday, probably. Here's the next question. What do you do? What do you do when you've taken out the magnifying glass like we just did and you find out that you're falling into or slipping into or how about just rebelliously headlong, screw you, God. I'm running that way. Right off the edge of the cliff. What do you do in those moments when you go, hey, not just that I fell into it, not just the pressures of this world talked me into it, but you know what? There's something actually really alive inside of me that even though I've known Jesus for longer than 15 minutes, I still find myself in this place where I'm like, I don't want you, God. I want somebody else. And I run off that cliff. What do you do in those moments? What is the remedy for that kind of sin? And here's Peter's shot in the arm. Peter's shot in the arm is this. The end is near. The end is near. Now, when I first read that, I read that a certain way. But think about it. Doesn't it kind of blow your mind that that's where Peter goes? Right? Like, that's, that's what his initial 
hey, you're in the emergency room, you're bleeding out, like we got to get, you're, you're hemorrhaging, you need a, a shot to keep you alive. Hey, buddy, end is near. What? <laughs> That's not, I, I'll be more like, oh, come here, come here, you, you're going to be okay, you know, a little pat, a little cuddle. That's, that's not where Peter goes. The end is near. That's the shot in the arm that uh, Peter gives right up front. He basically says, first thing he says, hey, you need to realize that the end is near. Right, right there in verse 7, just in case you're wondering, um, you can go back and you look at it in verse 7, what does he say? He says, the end of all things is at hand. Why would Peter say this? That's a question we've got to ask. Why would Peter start out this way? Why would Peter draw our attention to the end being near as the first shot in the arm to heal this kind of sickness that sin has infected us with in regards to our ability to live, to love, and to serve like God has called us to? Why would he start there? Here's what I think. I think that the reason that Peter starts here at the end is because he doesn't just have a vision of judgment day. Now, let's be honest. When I first said a minute ago that's where he started and I asked that question, I think that most of us in this room would immediately get this thought of judgment day's coming, right? You got Terminator. I'll be back. Yeah. And Jesus does, Jesus does say... I'll be back. <laughs> you know, he's got something better than a shotgun, of course. Um, I just think that's the image that we kind of live with, right? Like, this world sucks. It stinks. It's going off its rocker. The end is coming. God's going to judge his enemies. That's great. It's biblical, but it's incomplete. Okay? You will get sick. You will get sick if you eat only that food. Follow me? I think the reason that Peter starts here at the end is because he doesn't just have a vision of judgment day for God's enemies. Like, again, I think many of us are prone to jump into. Here's what I think Peter actually has a vision for. I believe he has a vision for the gospel, like the complete message of the gospel when he says, hey, the end of all things is at hand. Why do I say this? I say this simply because <coughs> Peter knows that the end is near. Why? He knows that the end is near because the cross has already happened. He knows that the cross has won our citizenship in heaven. He knows, secondly, that the empty tomb has defeated our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And he also knows that Jesus is returning soon, not just to annihilate enemies, but he knows that Jesus is returning soon to take his bride home to eternal perfection and peace. So when Peter says, hey, when he starts here at the beginning with the end in mind, and he says, hey, uh, oh, the end of all things is near, what's he saying? He's saying that the gospel of the crucified, risen, and returning Savior that's the shot in the arm that you and I need to cure that sin infection. And we're trying to live, to love, and to serve like Jesus and find ourselves failing. 
So with that in mind, he moves on. The question you and I have got to have is like, okay, how are we to live then? If the next one is live, how are we to live? Well, the answer is simple. Live like Christ. Somebody say, live like Christ. Christ. (sighs) Thank you. Y'all are with me. So live like Christ, right? Verse 7, Peter says it this way. Look at it with me. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, whenever you see the word therefore, you're supposed to ask the question, what's the therefore? Therefore. Very good. You guys are awesome. (coughs) Therefore, since the end of all things is at hand, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. (coughs) Prayer is a very crucial aspect to living like Jesus, right? What Peter is basically saying here, I think, is that in light of Christ's finished work at the cross, in light of Christ's empty tomb, in light of Jesus' promised return, uh, we're not just called, listen to me, we're not just called, we are called, but we're not just called, we're also enabled. I mean, wouldn't it be stupid if you were called, but not, not then also given the enablement to do what you were called to do? Like, that would make God a joke, right? But God is no joke. He's called and he's enabled us to live a prayerful life that is overflowing with self-control and sober-mindedness. Self-control and sober-mindedness is kind of what unleashes a powerful prayer life in the midst of all the chaos and in the midst of all of the temptation of this world. Do you think about it this way, from a negative standpoint, a a lack of self-control? Anybody struggle with that? (coughs) A a life of undisciplined chaos? chaos? Got my days. A mind that is intoxicated with the wants and the desires of this life? Have my moments. (laughs) Okay? And when I say have my moments, I'm really downplaying it for you. Okay? There's probably stronger language I ought to be using. Those kinds of things are what destroys, destroys a regular, disciplined rhythm of a peace-filled prayer life. Okay? We think about Jesus. When you study the life of Christ, what do you see? What do you see in his life? I see Jesus constantly, constantly resisting the chaos. I see Jesus constantly resisting the worldly desires that he would have been tempted with just as you and I have been tempted with. I see him doing that as he pulls away from the crowds, not to play video games, not to look at pornography, not to hide out in his man cave. I see Jesus pulling away in those moments for periodic times of refreshing prayer. Right? Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night before his crucifixion, what's he doing? He's kneeling in that garden. What are his friends doing? They're sleeping. They're sleeping. If ever there was a moment for someone to get up out of their prayer and become really cynical, That would have been the moment, but not Jesus. Jesus does confront his friends like, hey, Peter, couldn't you have stayed with me just for an hour? Right? (laughs) I'm Peter. 
I fall asleep too. In fact, there's, there's times of my day where I will lay down on my couch knowing, <laughs> and I tell my wife, I'm, I'm going to go pray. <laughs> you know where that goes, right? Three minutes later, <laughs> I wake up and Chrissy's like, that sounds like a pretty good prayer life there. <laughs> you know? Jesus, though, on the night before his death, what's he doing? He's, he's kneeling down in the middle of that garden. He's walking in sweet fellowship. He's walking in sweet communion with his Father. Like, to, to live like Christ really is to unleash the power of an unshackled prayer life in the midst of a chaotic and intoxicated world. I asked you earlier to dream a little bit about what it would be like to be a church family who was fully funded with $10,000 extra. Can I just ask you another question to dream along with me? What would it look like to be a church family who possessed together the kind of prayer life that was so unshackled by the chaos of this world, what would that look like to be a church family that had that kind of a powerful prayer life? Would it look like for all of us to be prayer walking through the streets of this neighborhood for the salvation of people who are going to hell? What would it, what would it be like for us to catch a vision of what it means to be a church family who runs a rescue mission within a yard of hell. Like, this is what Jesus did, right? Like, I love that picture. That, that picture is a picture of like an army charging the gates of hell, right? That's what Jesus did. The prayer life was the center of that. It was crucial. And I'm not, I'm not even saying that everybody in this room doesn't pray well, right? I'm just saying, what would it look like for us to take a next step in that area? Man, I think it'd be powerful. not just that uh, we need to be reminded of the fact uh, that, that the end is near, right? Uh, not just that we need to live like Christ. We also need to learn to love like Christ. Because when you start living like Christ, what does it actually look like? What does it actually mean? Well, a big piece of that is loving like Christ. Look at how Peter says it, verses 8 through 9. Look at your Bible with me. He says, above all, so he's like, hey, this is the most important thing I could say to you today. That's what he's saying. Above all, keep loving one another. So he almost says that like he knows they're already doing it, right? Keep, so he's, it's not, it's not he, Peter's not like the pastor who's like, you guys suck, okay? <laughs> and, but I do think Peter knows that we're human and we're sinful and we do fail at this. But I think he's recognizing as a good shepherd, hey, you guys are doing this. Keep doing this. Keep loving one another earnestly, earnestly, vigorously, right? It's not like, oh, just, just love each other well. It's like, you know, you got a dude that's in the ER and he's on that thing and he's bleeding out. I don't, I don't think you need to go punch him. I don't think that's the picture. But earnestly, vigorously, you're getting after it. You're going to save people. You're going to love them well, right? Love one another earnestly since you're going to love others earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Um, I think in the original Greek, I think those two pieces fit together, right? Like if you're going to love others earnestly and 
and you're going to cover a multitude of sins. It's going to be shown in the kind of hospitality you exhibit that's not full of grumbling and complaining. Now, I don't think it's a, <coughs> I don't think it's a secret um, that loving people is hard. Would you agree? I think some of us at times may find it easier than other times. I would agree that there are some people who are easier to love than others. I would agree with those. Um, but those are all just surfacey things. Loving people at the end of the day takes an investment on my end, right? It, it takes a certain amount of responsibleness on my end. Um, it's still hard. But what Peter's saying here is this, if we know that Christ's work at the cross, because he began at the end, if we know that Christ's work at the cross and the empty tomb uh, actually assures us of his impending rescue of us into some kind of eternal peace once and for all, then, then the natural outcome of that is this, we are free to love just like Jesus where we're not in bondage anymore. And I love, I love the way, if you look at the way the biblical authors write, especially in the, in the New Testament, um, you, you'll see them oftentimes placing in front of you a vision. Hey, you're in Christ. You're free. Free. Right? Therefore, don't sin anymore. You get the picture, right? What's he doing? He's casting a vision for who you actually are. And he's saying, you know, when, when you walk in sin, you're actually just walking like somebody that you're not. That's not you. Like, what, what the biblical authors, God does this really well. I think God is the God of dreaming. I really do. I think God has a big, massive dream for our lives. I mean, I'm not trying, I don't want to get off into some weird heresy where like it's all about me or all about you, but it's all about his own glory. But still, when God looks at you and I, he looks at us through the cross of Christ, and he says, I got a picture of Abe. I know what Abe looks like. I know who Abe is. Abe is my son, and he's perfect. I don't need anything different in Abe. And then Abe's, Abe's like, yeah, that's me. I just, just want to walk that way. So the question is, if that's the picture of who you are, is this, person who's been redeemed by Jesus, you're a saint. Perfect. Then you just reverse engineer and you just go, yeah, I want to walk like that person. It's the same thing we do with college kids, right? Kids are going to college, say, hey, who do you want to be? Who do you want to be when you get older? Right? And we say, well, then just reverse engineer. What do you need to do to get there? How are you going to walk like that person? Free. Free to love like Christ. We're, we're free to cover a multitude of sins as we vigorously love even the worst of society and even, even our enemies. I don't know who it is that's your enemy this morning. It's either the Republican or the Democrat across the aisle for whoever you are in the room, okay? Just, that's your enemy. And I always throw it out there because I don't really care which side of the aisle you fall on. What I care about is do you live under the crushing weight of idolatry, or do you live under the freeing weight of our Savior? So I always want to call out that. 
I know my own heart, so I don't know who your enemy is. Could be a family member, a relative, past lover, who knows. Um, whoever it is for you, that enemy needs to be loved. And here's the way that you do this. Like if you and I know Christ, then, then our job is to invite people. And not just invite and be like, hey, you know, you should come on over here to church with me on Sunday. And then when they walk through the door, we're like, oh, they showed up. I'm, I'm, you, you get me? There's a difference between inviting and welcoming. And if you invite but do not welcome, then you're not practicing hospitality. Hospitality encompasses both. Is not this the way that Christ uh, actually did this for us? Is this not the way that Christ actually does this for us now even? Okay? The whole hospitality, loving hospitably, loving in a way that you invite and welcome at the same time, right? Not just one or the other and then get off thinking the job is done. Isn't this what Christ has done and does do for you and I? Did Jesus not come to you and I when we were his enemies? Did he not do that? Um, did he not come to you and I when we were filthy in our sins? Did he not? Yes. Oh, did he not come to us when we were cheating on him with all sorts of other lovers? Isn't that the picture? Donnie and I love to talk about the picture of Hosea and, and his, his wife, who was a prostitute, and the picture of what it would be like to be Hosea's wife, naked and ashamed, on the podium in the middle of the city being bid on, men casting their bids to take her home and have sex with her, right? And she's got her head down in shame is the picture. This obviously didn't originate with Donnie and I, but it's a picture. It originated in the Bible, I guess. <laughs> we didn't write the Bible. But she's standing there with her head down in shame, and she hears men bidding their, their prices on her, and then suddenly she hears the voice of her husband saying, I will pay anything to get her back. You and I are the woman on the stage. We're not Hosea. Hosea is a picture of Jesus winning us back from our other lovers that we constantly give ourselves to, whether that be entertainment, isolation, control, pleasure-seeking, you name it, the list goes on and on because there's a junk drawer for if you and I can't put words to it, we create sin. Okay, because sin's very alive and well inside of us. Did, did Jesus not go to the cross with joy in his heart? Um, as his ultimate expression of his love that would then cover a multitude of our sins? Did, did Jesus not in those moments invite us and not only invite us but welcome us in? You know? Like what better motivation could you and I have other than this picture of Jesus and the way that he has loved us? Like it is the cross it is the empty tomb, it is the promised return of Jesus that will enable you and I to overcome a multitude of sins as we seek to love the worst of society, and not just the worst of society, but even our enemies. By inviting them, by welcoming them into relationship with us, joyfully, not full of complaints. Uh, here's the crazy thing. You know, God doesn't just leave us there. He's like, oh, okay, now that you're in a loving relationship with them, I think, I think you're, doing, you're doing good, right? That's, that's where I want you. 
right? Like just, I want you welcoming and inviting, right? Inviting and welcoming. And once you've done that, thank God we got, no, God's always got more stuff in mind for us to live just like him on this earth, right? He enables us and he equips us by the power of the spirit to then begin serving just like Jesus. It's to live, it's to love, and it's to serve just like Jesus. Here's how Peter says it. Look back at verses 10 through 11. Grab your Bibles or look at the screen, one of the two. Peter says, as each has received a gift. So, key words, received a gift. Your talents, your passions, your gifts, they were given to you, right? They were handed to you. He moves on, and who gave those to you? God gave those to you and me. He moves on. He says, use it to serve one another. So my gifts, my talents were not given to me for my own self-pleasure. Well, that's helpful. Like that, that kind of kills this old thing where it's like, I am so fulfilled by the amount of serving I get to do right now. You get that crazy kind of look in the eye, you know, when people are like, I just really love to preach, or I really, really love to teach kids, or I really love to serve coffee, and it, it just fills me up so much. It's like, would you stop with yourself? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, please don't hear me wrong. I don't want to over-exaggerate because there is an amount of self-fulfillment. I hate to even say the word, but there is. There is a way in which God has wired each of you and I. He gave us gifts. Then we have this passion, and when we use our gifts, there's a joy in it. There's an excitement. As you can tell, there's a joy and excitement as I'm preaching. I do love to preach and teach, right? And I'm going to go home. I'm going to pass out this afternoon because I'll have been worn out. I do enjoy it. There's a level of that. <clears throat> Look back at the text again. Use it to serve one another. It's others focused. That's my point. If you if you were wondering. <laughs> As good stewards. Love the word stewards. I know stewards means manager. Stewards means something has been given to you that doesn't belong to you. It's it's on loan to you. Right? And at some point when you get to the pearly gates, you're like, hey, how'd you do with that? You know, it's the same question I uh, I'd ask of my kids, you know, it's send Lewis outside to uh, mow the lawn, right? And that mower does not belong to him. And uh, that yard does not belong to my son either. It belongs to me. And actually above me, it belongs to God. So <laughs> um, I send him out, I'll tell him exactly how I want it done. And then when he's done, I'll be like, okay, now let's go take a look and see how good you did. Did you do well? Hey, you did good. Yeah, you missed a few there, but it's God's grace is sufficient for you, <laughs> right? maybe or the answer could be here's a pair of scissors go finish the job no <laughs> that's what my mom would do just so you know okay that's what my mom would do here's some scissors have fun with that get after it little boy anyways good stewards of god's varied grace the gifts that you and i have had have have been given to us by god it's an extension of his varied grace the word varied meaning each of us has different gifts right uh abe is a massive encourager so is Eric, but the way that they encourage is very, very different because they're wired differently, right? Donnie has a gift of teaching. There's some in our, in, in our space who have a gift of administration. Um, there are others who have the gift of just doing things hands-on. I don't know what gift it is you have and what you're passionate about, but God has given you those gifts. And the reality of the teaching of scriptures is that your time, your talent, and your treasure were all given to you to be a steward of, a manager of, not a holder of. And put your hands up real quick and just clench your fist. I don't see everybody doing it, so I'm going to stand here until everybody does, okay? Thank you. Hey, now, 
Turn your hand over like this. Okay, you've, you've probably all seen this. Now, I want to give you all $1,000 right now, each of you. What are you going to do? I, I, I want $1,000. I'm not really going to give you $1,000, but I can't give you $1,000 when your fists are clenched like this. Right? Your hand's got to be open. That's a little picture of generosity. It's the whole picture of what God has given us, time, talent, and treasure. We hold those in an open hand. We don't hold them in a closed hand. If you hold them in a closed hand, you can't receive more. And for whom uh, a, a little bit is given and it has been found faithful, much more is given. Typically that passage is talking about the, uh, um, there's, uh, there's practical earthly things and there's spiritual matters. As you are faithful, steward of those things, God continues to give you more. We don't give to get, we give because we've been given so much. At the end of the day, we're to be good stewards of God's very grace. Look at verse 11. He spells it out. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, not in your own strength. When you are speaking, you're speaking for God. In order that in everything, God may be what? Glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So here's the thing, right? At the end of the day, serving people can get super tiring. Anybody else agree? Okay. It can be super tiring. It can be hard. You're down in the trenches. You're in, you're in the muck. You're in the mire. Uh, you're pushing cars up out of the ditch, out of the mud. I'd love to use this analogy. You get different ditches that we all fall in as people. You get legalism on one side. You get licentiousness on the other. I can do whatever I want because God's grace is sufficient. Or I can't do anything because <laughs> I'm so legalistic. <laughs> um, you get people in those ditches, right? And our job is to help people. And you start pushing them up out of that ditch, and you're getting mud and muck all over you, and the center of the road is where the gospel is, right? Christ crucified, risen, and returning. The center of the road is where we want us, that little small tiny road, and you get to push in, they're pushing on the gas, they fly right over the road, they're back on the other side of the ditch, now they're licentious. It's like, oh my gosh. Ah, you're pushing people back up, but trying to get them on that road, right? This is where our time, our talent, and our treasure come in handy. Our job is to love people and to serve people. So it can get tiring, but here's the picture I have in my mind. I know a Savior. I know a Savior who tied a towel around his waist at the cross as he served you and I by washing us with his blood. I know a Savior who destroyed our enemies at the empty tomb when you and I were too weak to resist the onslaught of the accusations of Satan and the temptation of sin and the doom and the taunts of death that come from our enemy, the grave. I know a Jesus who gave us the promise of his return. Why? to keep us steady and hope-filled in the face of the horrors of this life. Here's what I know. I know that because of the cross, I know that because of the empty tomb, and I know that because of the promise of the return of Jesus, I know this, you and I, we can. You and I, we can serve the most unlovable. We can serve even our enemies with the gifts and the talents that God has given us. 
We can pour our lives out in faith in the crucified, risen, and returning Savior as we give away our time, our talent, and our treasure. Why? We do it for the sake of the kingdom of God, who is ruled by Christ, right? We can serve like Christ. We can speak for Christ in the power of the risen Christ so that all of the world around us might know that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. <coughs> Conclusion. <coughs> In conclusion, when, when, when you and I feel weary, when we feel like we're alone, we feel like there's nobody else there with us, when you and I are struggling with sin, and when Satan comes and accuses and condemns us, when the stench of death frightens you or taunts you, and when it feels like the horrors of this life are never going to end, when it feels like, or, or when you sense that your, your prayer life continuously gets interrupted by the chaos and the intoxicating lure of sin, when, when really unlovable people uh, sin against you and wound you deeply, when you and I, when we survey uh, the world that we live in, and when you survey the world that you live in as an outcast, like, I don't belong here, just like Peter's audience, when you realize, but I've trusted in Jesus, if you've trusted in Jesus. Therefore, I've been chosen by God. I'm his son or his daughter. When you survey the world like that, when you survey the world like the very few people who have gotten on this narrow path, not all the people who were on this big wide path, you're on this very narrow path, right? You're like Pilgrim's Progress, bag on your back, struggling to make it one day to the next. And when you say, yeah, that's, that's me. And when you begin to identify with that, you can trust. You and I can trust that the cross and the empty tomb and the promised return of Jesus, that marks the impending end of this pain-filled, sin-soaked life. I don't know what the end looks like for you or what you dream of. But at the end of the day, you and I can live like Christ. Oh, we can love like Christ. And we can serve like Christ because the shadow of the bloody cross and the doorway of the empty tomb and the promise of heaven that's all we need. It's all we need. It's all we need to live, to love, and to serve like Christ, knowing one thing, that the end of all things is at hand. Amen? Would you stand with me? Father, as we come to you now. 
in a different mode of worship. As we've worshipped you, studying through your word, help us to worship you through song and prayer and the receiving of communion. Come inhabit the praises and the worship of your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.